let's talk about uh, how pop culture or social media may mm -hmm. influence like this whole field of mental health. So, mm, you know, question, yeah. definitely Facebook, uh, Instagram, yeah. pretty much all the big tech companies are constantly fighting for our, our attention, yes. showing things that either uh, excites us or makes us angry, yeah. you know, or um, maybe the illusion that things are perfect. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on this? Uh. That's a whole nother episode uh -huh. and I have so many thoughts that they're all jumbled together. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Oh gosh. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine recently uh, and I think she watched a whole documentary on influencers um, and how there's actually like um, at kind of like a higher rate of suicide amongst people who choose that profession. And I think part of it has to do with kind of constantly having to portray a certain image of yourself. Right. And it's like when you're, when you're constantly in a state of, trying to portray, you know, or, or uh, an image of yourself or doing like impression management all the time. Like, I wonder how that impacts our ability to, to authentically understand who we are, right? Because if we're like, if our personality is being shaped by likes and by what people want to see, right? Like we may push other parts of ourselves away, right? Or not really tune into ourselves because we're like hyper-focused on how other people are perceiving us. Welcome to episode five of the Enculturation Podcast, where we aim to make learning about the world fun, engaging, and accessible, helping you stay tuned, stay curious. So today I have the wonderful pleasure, honor, privilege of welcoming <laughs> my good friend, Aaron Mason. Aaron Mason is a licensed psychotherapist and movement artist based in Los Angeles area. His study of dance has included techniques of hip hop, house, jazz, ballet, modern, and most recently, West African dance. His dance journey has also afforded him the opportunity to dance with Culture Shock San Diego, Unity Dance Ensemble, Rhapsody in Taps, the Brembra West African Dance Troupe, Soleil Dance Arts, and choreographer Victoria Marks of UCLA. In 2018, Aaron also received a grant from the Alliance for California Traditional Arts to deepen his study of West African dance with dance and drum master Wilfred Soli. Aaron has received his bachelor's in psychology from the University of San Diego in 2006 and his master's in counseling psychology from California State University, Long Beach, with an emphasis on marriage and family therapy in 2014. Aaron is currently the clinical director of Reach LA, a nonprofit organization serving the LGBTQ plus BIPOC in the Los Angeles area and also maintains a small private practice. Aaron is currently continuing his education through the study of dance movement therapy in hopes of blending his passions for dance and the healing arts. Welcome to the show, Hello. Aaron. <laughs> Thank you. That was a mouthful. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> It was with pleasure. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I thought I was writing this like, this is too much information, but whatever. So. <laughs> yeah. So uh, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm excited to have you here. It's been a full circle since from knowing you to get to part where we are. I'm so happy that you agreed to come on the show. And, um, you know, I generally believe in what you're doing and hopefully we can disseminate some of the information and make it accessible. Right. Yeah. Thank you. It's a pleasure. We go so far back. So like seeing you evolve into this is really a gift. So thank you. Yeah. So with that said, um, let's get right into it. You're right. Mm -hmm. My, my first question I think is, um, is going to set the foundation for the rest of the conversation. So, you know, just what exactly is, um, is, is mental health. And the reason why I asked that is, 
You know, I, th- I think there's misconceptions or misunderstandings about what mental health is mm-hmm. and maybe some like stigmas around it. Um, where, like whether it's like mental health is, oh, you gotta got take a bunch of pills or mm. if you seek mental health, then you're a crazy person, you know? So let's unpack all that. So let's yeah. start from the top. What is mental health? Yeah, I so I can speak to what I think about when I think of mental health. Um, and, you know, this is just kind of my own personal lens on it. Um, so if you ask different people, they might say different things. But um, what I can share is that oftentimes when I think about mental health, I think about our relationship to our nervous system. Uh, and I think about what happens like when we're in a nice kind of regulated state, like we're in that nice, calm social engagement network. So like I'm talking to you and if I feel relaxed, like the conversation just flows, there's a sense of safety. Um, and then I think about, you know, what happens when we don't have that kind of sense of regulation or that sense of safety. Uh, and so if you've heard of like the fight or flight mechanism in our body, which, you know, is very helpful <laughs> evolutionarily, um, lets us know when there's danger present um, and really helps us protect ourselves. But sometimes that can be kind of keyed up, especially if we've had traumatic situations in our lives um, or even just like from toxic stress. Right. So there's something called a window of tolerance. Right. And when we're inside of that window of tolerance, um, we're usually pretty regulated. We're, again, we're in that social engagement network. And then when we um, become triggered, whether we go above that window of tolerance into like hyper arousal. So like I'm anxious, like before we started this podcast, <laughs> right? Um, or or um, my body kind of shuts down. My nervous system kind of shuts down. I go below that window of tolerance into more of a dissociative kind of cutoff space. Um, so what we're trying to do a lot, I think, within mental health is really help people find flexibility in their nervous system so they can find their way back inside that window and maybe even expand that window, you know, so that, you know, if they are triggered, they can more easily come back to a place where they feel regulated again. Um, so really, that's just one lens on it. But that's one of the things that I think about. Yeah. Great, great. Uh, before we continue, I just want to put a disclaimer for our listeners out there. If you know you yourself or you know somebody who needs mental health mm-hmm. right away, contact uh, yeah. the right yeah. uh organizations nearby you. So don't let this video be the only uh, stop for this, right? I really appreciate that. Yes. If you need help, there are so many services out there um, and we'll talk about that more later, but yeah, definitely seek professional, professional help. So. Yeah. So uh, what about like mental health as far as its history? Like how, how did it come about? Um, Is it like a relatively recent, uh, recent practice mm-hmm. as compared to as physical health, for example, you know? Yeah, I think the the recognition of it is definitely more re- recent than the medical field, um, which is why I think it's still coming into a place where it's, we're really understanding the impact of our mental health on our physical health, right? Like those things, I don't think you can separate those things. But I think historically, we've placed, placed more of a priority on the, on the physical body, right? Uh, not recognizing the ways in which, you know, we hold stress or, you know, our, our relationship to our nervous system really f- affects our relationship to the world, I think. Um, and so I'm not like 100%, you know, a historian, <laughs> but I can say that my education, um, you know, began around like psychoanalysis and Sigmund Freud, who everybody probably hears about a lot when I think of psychology. Um, you know, you sit on the couch and you're just free associating and you're telling somebody everything that comes out of your mind and they're analyzing you, which is, you know, not so much how it is now. I think we've learned kind of a lot of the, of Freud's approaches were not necessarily the only way to approach and not, <laughs> not everything was actually helpful. 
um, about the way that he approached working with mental health. Um, but one of the important things I think that, that came out of that was really the impact of our early childhood experiences on our lives later and how that never really leaves us, right? So those early relationships that we have really kind of form the template of how we relate to people way down the line, if you've ever heard of like attachment, right? So that initial relationship that we have with whoever our caregivers are really does then influence the way that we relate to people later on in life, so. Um, well, there's a, a lot to unpack there. Yeah. So let's maybe lay the, down the groundwork for uh, where this conversation can go or mm -hmm. what branch we're exploring. Mm -hmm. So can you speak a little bit about um, the different branches of mental health and what can that look like? Yeah. So like theory wise, there's so many, <laughs> you know, um, I just mentioned psychoanalysis. Um, there's uh, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. And these are really kind of the more bigger ones or foundational ones. And again, this is within a Western psychology framework. So I do want to like just put out there that we have always had ways as human beings, I think of dealing with our nervous system or relating to our psyche. But I think that, you know, here in the States, of course, Western ways of doing that have been privileged. And what's interesting now is I think we're coming back around to understanding the importance of the body in that conversation, which is what I think you might pull a lot from communities of color. So we think about, you know, drum, dance and things like that, you know, um, medicine people, shamans, things like that were always ways that I think more indigenous folks had of addressing mental health. Um, but in our modern day, it's it's more of this Western psychology approach. Would it be fair to say that those cultures may address it, but may associate it as something else rather exactly, than Exactly, right? Okay. Like we might talk more about spirituality, you know, than we do about like mental health. Um, it may be related to other other aspects of our being than, than the way that we conceptualize it here in the West. So that's a really great point. Another branch, which I'm looking to move into more, which I'm studying more is kind of somatic and the way that the body is included in this conversation around mental health. Um, and so dance movement therapy is something that I'm really interested in and passionate about. So that's another branch off. Um, so by dance movement therapy, uh, the takeaway would be like some kind of physical, physical movement therapy. Yeah. Yeah. And, ex and it's almost like the way that I'm what I'm discovering, um, is that it's, it's just a different way of communicating, you know, um, I'm traditionally trained more talk therapy. Right. And I think I have a pretty good understanding of like how to glean what's going on with somebody through verbal communication. Body language is a piece of that, but it's not obviously as explicit as it is in dance movement therapy, where it's like you're really trying to connect with somebody kinesthetically to pick up what's going on with them and how to intervene. So, yeah. Do you think it's not as explicit because um, as a society, we value like words more and back to the whole mental thing, right? Absolutely. But it can be maybe not, I wouldn't say argue, but it can be uh, proposed that um, like our body language might be the first language. Mm, mm. Say more about that. Yeah, like, like you know, it, it takes us how many years to learn how to talk, right? Mm. Uh, but learning how to move around and yeah. in interpret like the physicality of it yes. is yeah. something that uh, maybe happens right away. I love that. I, 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 I don't have research on this to back it up, but it just seems like that would be yeah. um, the most natural thing. It's uh, right. Yeah, I love that. And I, I, I don't have research either, but I'm going to agree with that. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do believe that, you know, that's one of the first relationships we have is to our own bodies. Right. Mm -hmm. And one of the first um, vehicles of communication. Right. So I think that's that's absolutely true. Um, yeah. Um, and so. So under, so as I'm learning dance movement therapy, I'm learning that I have to learn a whole new way of hearing someone 
almost. And that's through, um, through watching their bodies or kinesthetically connecting with them. Uh, and through that, you can do like your own assessment and kind of idea and gain uh, ideas about where to go with treatment or how to intervene. So, so mm-hmm. would it be fair to say that it suggests that um, experiences, good or bad, such as trauma, is yeah. uh, is stored in the body oh, and can be released through physical movements? Absolutely. Yeah. There's a really great book um, by a psychiatrist named Bessel van der Kolk. And you can get the book, you can listen to a few of his podcasts, um, but he really goes into into great detail about the ways that trauma stores itself in our bodies. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, it's really important, I think, in thinking about how we heal that we don't leave the body out of the conversation. Because, you know, everything is experienced through the vehicle of our body. And, and definitely, as you said before, you know, all of our experiences get stored in our body. Um, and trauma specifically needs to be processed and um, metabolized, <laughs> you know, if you think about the way that we metabolize food, right? We eat it, we take it in, we take the nutrients from it, and then we pass what is no longer good for us, right? And so it's almost the same with like experiences, right? Like we take in and we experience an experience and with trauma, it's like that experience almost gets stuck, right? And so we're not able to really metabolize or process through it. And so trauma therapy is one of the ways that we help do that. And working with the body has been shown to be a really helpful way to help move those experiences through us. So, so like, what are some tips to, uh, to better identify mental health? Like what can... Yeah. Or I guess what I'm asking is, what's the spectrum of mental health, right? So, for example, if we take the uh, mental health out of it and just think purely physical, yeah, um, you know, someone can get a paper cut uh, or uh, a um, broken leg, yeah, or stab, right? And we we, yeah. we can recognize that there's layers to that severity, right? Yeah. So, like, how, like, what are some ways that we can recognize the same, um same trends for mental health? Is yeah. it like an, an action and a thought or is it like uh, someone's body language? Like yeah. what, what, what does that look like? And you recognize them in ourselves and in other people? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's a really good question. So uh, so for example, yeah. mm-hmm. I, I don't know the, the, the spectrum fully, yeah. but I yeah. would guess that somewhere in there, there's like one place where uh, maybe self-limiting beliefs, right? Mm-hmm. So, so and, and then yeah. on the other end, something more destructive might be suicidal thoughts. Yes. So, so like, yeah, that is, a, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah. what what are some things that can be, uh, yeah. that, that can add more resolution to that spectrum? Yeah. Um, I'm going to try to answer that to the best of my ability. So one of the things that's coming up as you're, as you're talking is, I th- like, for instance, if I think about a specific diagnosis like depression, right? Um, so some of the symptoms of that are um, kind of ruminating, you know, negative self-thoughts about yourself, others in the world at large, um, uh, low motivation, right? Low mood, tearfulness, um, anhedonia. So you like, you can't really find joy in life. Um, uh, you may lose interest in things that used to be really fascinating for you. Like you don't really have an interest in those. You may oversleep, you may undersleep, right? So there's all these cluster of symptoms that come together to form uh, depression, right? And if you look on the DSM, which is the book that we use to diagnose, it'll give you a certain amount of time and a certain amount of symptoms um, can really determine what is the severity of that, right? So if we're just talking about like, you know, well, not just, cause I don't wanna like qualify anybody's experience cause it's subjective for everyone. But if we're talking about maybe somebody who has, you know, just some, some ruminating thoughts, some negative ruminating thoughts, um, maybe a low mood, maybe they're losing interest in things that they used to. And let's say that that's kind of the, the amalgamation of the symptoms that they have. Maybe that'd be like a, 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 um, a more, um, 
moderate depression, right? Something that's a little lower on that scale. But if somebody's shifting all the way to the point where they're having suicidal thoughts, then we'll say that's more severe, mm -hmm. right? And so the intervention is going to be different, obviously, at each level of that. Because yeah. I, I, I found that uh, usually mental health is not recognized or yeah. identified until it gets really severe. Exactly. But like, exactly. how do we yeah. spot all the signs early yeah. on to prevent, uh, yeah. prevent that, that uh, red flag zone? Yeah, know? yeah. That's a really good question. It's like, how do we become more aware sooner? Yeah, right. right. Like, right. I, I guess the, the analogy yeah. might be, yeah. um, you're, you're on top of the hill and you see the hill in front of you. Let's yeah. stop right there yeah. versus rolling down and then looking up at, up yeah. all the way you fell down, you know? Yeah. I mean, one of the first things that comes to mind when you say that is awareness, okay. right? Um, I'm a big proponent of like a mindfulness practice. And then this is just like when we're thinking about ourselves um, and recognizing the symptoms of ourselves. I'm a big proponent of like mindfulness practice, right? So we can build that awareness of like, I'm not feeling like myself, right? Like, you know, I have a baseline you know, and that changes from day to day. But, you know, if I notice in myself that, you know, my mood is a little bit lower than it tend to be, and that's been a trend for a little bit, or if I notice that I'm isolating, a big one, you know, for depression and for myself in general is like, I'm, I'm typically an introvert, but if I notice that I'm getting to the point where I'm isolating, that's a red flag for me of like, okay, Aaron, you need to like take care of yourself, right? Because you're kind of going within yourself and you're separating yourself. Um, and so, so all that's to say, I think really having an awareness of yourself of like what it feels like when you feel well, right? What does it feel like when I'm functioning well, when I'm connected to um, the people around me, when I'm connected to my work, when I'm connected to the things that I enjoy, like what does that feel like to be in that space? Um, and then I think when you can be aware of that, you'll notice like deviations from that, right? Um, and so I guess a, a good way to acknowledge or recognize you know, not so great mental health is to notice when do you feel great? Yeah. And, and, and how, how do you show up and how do you relate to these different domains of your life, right? When you're in a good space. And that's actually one of the things that we would look at when we're like determining the severity of a diagnosis is like, how is this really impacting this person's overall functioning? So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I like what you're saying. And, um, the key theme there would be awareness, right? Yeah. And I think, um, critical to awareness is having the right language or vocabulary to yeah. understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the importance of language yeah. in regards to mental health, yeah. um, whether it's no, actually having the ability to describe how you're feeling, right? Yeah. And depending on who you are, they, that may seem very, very uh, straightforward and easy, mm -hmm. or it may be actually a little confusing because I, I've noticed that um, Sometimes people don't really feel good yeah. or, but you don't feel bad either. They feel something else, you know, mm -hmm. but their f immediate thoughts are like, well, I don't feel bad. So therefore I must feel good. But, but they, they maybe don't have the other words to describe yeah. what is their feeling. So let's talk yeah. about how, how important yeah. is language yeah. to uh, having more awareness. I think that's a really great point. I, there's something called alexithymia, uh, which is essentially the inability to, to name the emotions that you're feeling. Um, I used to work a lot with kids um, at a center that's focused on domestic violence and child abuse. Um, and I worked with children who had been through traumatic situations. And one of the things that we try to teach children is how to identify and like express your emotions in a healthy way. And that would be like as simple as like playing a game where we pull different emotions out of a hat 
right? And like, I'll act out the emotion and the kid has to name it. And then the kid has to act it out in themselves, right? Now it seems like a game, but really what you're doing there is you're teaching the kid to be able to name and identify their emotional states so that when they do start to feel a certain way, they have the language to be able to express it versus to suppress it and act it out, right? And I would say the same applies for adults, right? You know, I think there's like, uh, there's a myriad of tools online, literally lists of feelings, like even the emojis, right? Like you can look on your cell phone and you can see all these different expressions. Like you can use those as tools, you know, if you're trying to learn for yourself or if you're trying to show somebody else um, how to identify different feeling states inside of yourself. Have you ever come across the uh, the feeling wheel? Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What are your thoughts on the feeling yeah. wheel? Is that, wait, let me just clarify, clarify the feeling wheel for me. Okay. So, um, if you've ever done any uh, visual art form, there's yeah. the color wheel, right? Uh-huh. So the, the, the feeling wheel is the same concept where um, instead of like reds and blues okay, yeah, and yeah. greens, it has like, okay, let's break down good. What is good? Are you delighted? Yes, Are you okay, joyful? I've seen, I've seen, you know, yes, and yes. what's bad? Bad is like, yeah. maybe I'm just tired. Yeah. Maybe I'm uninspired, yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I have seen it. Actually, if there's, if anyone's interested, if anyone's interested, <laughs> there's a website called Therapist Aid and you don't need to be a therapist to go on it. Um, but it has all these different like worksheets and tools that you can use for, for different things regarding mental health. So on there, it has like a whole category about emotions and the feelings will is one of the tools that's on there. And I think, yeah, things like that are a really great way to begin to explore like what different feeling states um, are like inside of you. I think journaling is also a really another great way. I, I recommend that a lot to folks. And, you know, it, I think it's a really nice way of checking in with yourself and building that relationship with yourself so that you can begin to identify with yourself. Is it just any act of writing down your thoughts or is there, is there um, a direction to it? Is it yeah. a certain... Um, yeah, I think it depends on the person. Like yeah. I, there's, there's journals out there now that actually give you tools about different styles of journaling. Um, you know, but if you're, if you're trying to identify mm -hmm. your feelings, you could just start writing out, like, I feel, you know, pull out your feelings list, pull out your journal. I feel this today. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think over time, as you begin to, um, you know, be able to identify that it becomes easier for you to express yourself too. So now I have to ask, uh, have you noticed different groups having different, um, yeah. strengths and bottlenecks? So for example, would it be fair to say that women tap into their emotions a lot easier than men? Mm. Um, not as like a biological thing, but maybe as a cultural thing, how, how they're raised up. Cause I, I do mm -hmm. know it's pretty common for guys to be like, oh yeah, you know, boys don't cry kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. Where you shut down your emotions and, and you don't display any of that. So what, what, what's been your experience? Yeah, it's been my experience that men tend to struggle with identifying their feelings and, and women tend to be socialized to be more in touch with their emotions. Um, <laughs> I actually ran um, or facilitated a group of um, perpetrators of intimate partner violence at one of my other jobs. Um, and <laughs> it's rough being in a room full of men who had certain thoughts about, you know, um, who women were, you know, and I would hear them talk about, you know, women's relationships with their emotions or, and that kind of categorizes almost like, like crazy or, you know, um, like there was something wrong because they were in, in tune with their feelings. I'm like, these beings give life. Like <laughs> you want the being that gives life to be in tune with themselves so that they can be in tune with the child that they are trying to rear, you know? Uh, so it tends to be that men really struggle with that. And, and really oftentimes I think 
don't see the value in being able to identify what's going on inside of themselves until something goes wrong. Yes. Until they end up in a group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. So uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great point. Back to the whole thing about like uh, being able to be informed and aware yeah. on the signs before it happens yeah. and not just like, okay, um, now I can't get out no matter what. So I got to sign up. Exactly. Right? Like I've hit rock bottom. Now I have to do something different, which, you know, some people come to change that way, you know, but you don't have to. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, speaking personally, yeah. so take it as you will, but uh, yeah, I, I did struggle with identifying my, my emotions before back mm-hmm. to, back to like the whole um, applying a too broad of a stroke to what I was feeling, you know, yeah. which is good or bad. Good or bad. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Good or bad. Polar extreme. I know. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I actually discovered the, the feeling wheel on my own and uh, I, I hung it on my wall for a few I years. I love it. And it worked wonders. And now I'm like, look at that. It, it's, it, <laughs> this stuff really works. <laughs> it works. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Like I, I do wonder if the, in the future things are going to change with uh, more information being, being brought out, mm-hmm. right. That mm-hmm. having emotions doesn't make you weak. Cause I think that yeah. that actually is a stigma. Like it's a source of power. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, you know, as I forget what song it is, but as the saying goes, the more emotion I put into it, the harder I rock, right? Mm, what is that song? Yeah, I, I know it's one of the hip hop songs. I'm probably what it is right now. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's been a while, yeah, but yeah. I definitely know hearing that a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's your superpower. And I mean, like, you're, we're artists, right? So, like, I think we understand that, like, I mean, I don't always practice it. Like, it's sometimes it's difficult. A lot of times it's actually difficult to tap into that space. But when I can be vulnerable and really be in touch with my feelings, it just colors my life. You know, and so much more of a, like, there's so much more vitality in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Than kind of suppressing. So, yeah. So let's, let's talk about some of the, of the stigmas around mental health, mm-hmm. such as um, either mental health is for crazy people, for the weak minded, too mm-hmm. emotional. Um, it, it's almost to the point where it's like, demonized or weaponized, right? Mm. Um, may, maybe it's different for you since you're in the field, so you see others who who don't view that way. Mm-hmm. But I, I get a general sense talking to um, certain groups of people that it's like, it's an afterthought, you know, or mm-hmm. it's like, I don't need it, you know, mm-hmm. that, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So can, can you, let's unpack that and how can we um, humanize mental health more and make it more approachable? Yeah, I think like what we're doing right now, having conversations about it, I think helps make it more approachable. And I do like want to acknowledge that I feel like the conversation is changing. I mean, the fact that we're even having this conversation right now, I think is a result of like all the conversations around mental health that are really burgeoning right now. I think especially for communities of color. Um, I, I think that historically there hasn't been a lot of space for um people to have these conversations again, especially, you know, um, marginalized people, because we're kind of in survival mode. Um, if you think about, you know, our parents, right, and their parents, like there was no space to talk about your feelings, right? Like, what do you mean feelings? Like we have to like do what we need to do to survive. Um, and so it's really beautiful to see um, specifically marginalized groups opening up to the conversation um, around mental health and really allowing ourselves our feel, full, full humanity, right? By acknowledging our feelings. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm definitely an immigrant coming here and mental health in um, the older generation is like, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's like a very alien concept, mm-hmm. you, know, you know? Or mm-hmm. the approach might be like, mm-hmm. why are you complaining? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. Like just, just be grateful for what you have. Yeah. Which, has its place and purpose, yeah. but I think, yeah. you know, maybe yeah. um, 
going back to like a little bit of Maslow's hierarchy as you move mm-hmm. up with your needs, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and then you're no longer waking up with the thought of like, am I going to die today? Exactly. And then all these other things get unpacked, yeah. right? Yeah. Whether it's childhood trauma exactly. or otherwise. Yeah. It's like when you have that kind of stable foundation, then you can go deeper into unpacking some of those other things. But again, when you're in survival mode, there's not really the time to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some things that you noticed that, um, has helped even helped soften even the hardest uh, personalities towards mental health. Oh, <laughs> I don't know if this is going to help, but I love using music. Okay, like um, you know that I, this I think this song is just genius. Uh, it's the Salon song. The um, I tried to drink it away. What is that? What is that one? Cra- Cranes in the sky. Yeah, right. I thought that that song for me feels like such a beautiful metaphor for feeling your feelings. And so sometimes when I would be in group with, with grown ass adults, <laughs> um, you know, we'll be talking about emotions and we'll be talking about like, for instance, the, the ways that we suppress emotions or don't really acknowledge them. And I'll bring up like that, that song or like other things in pop culture that kind of reference like emotional processing. And I find like, if you can find something that people can relate to, you know, um, it's a really nice segue into talking about mental health. It, it, so it's a really nice way of normalizing it. So. So what I'm hearing is find some kind of connecting or anchor point. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And then hopefully through that uh, door, you can get past the walls, get past the barriers exactly. and get it to lower. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Just find that point of connection. I, and, you know, in therapy, I'm a huge proponent of like, you have to make that a ne- connection before information can pass through. I think the connection is, I know the connection to be one of the most foundational pieces to the work of therapists. In fact, the research shows that regardless of whatever modality you practice, it tends to be that it's the therapist themselves and the relationship between the therapist and the client that has the hugest impact on outcomes for the, for the client. So yeah, that connection piece is huge. Yeah. Let's talk about the connection piece uh, Mm -hmm. one more time and how that may translate to um, being connected to a community. Oh yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, um, so one of the things that I bring up a lot is in, in therapy is just belonging, right? I, I think it's a very basic human need. Um, and a lot of times I look at like pathology or when things go wrong, <laughs> you know, or what happens when we don't belong, the, the things that go wrong that happen when we don't feel like we belong. And so specifically, you know, being somebody doubly marginalized, black and queer and working with my own community, I, I see what happens when we don't feel like we have a sense of belonging to our families, you know, in particular, um, and the ways that we then go searching for our chosen family, um, but also the the harmful impact that has of feeling like you're not worthy of belonging, you know? And so connection, I think is a really, is, is the foundational piece to good mental health because as human beings, we're designed to be in relationship with one another. That's how we survived as a species, right? Like if you were alone, you were probably going to die, <laughs> you know? And so being in groups and feeling that sense of connection and belonging to a group is essential, I think, for, for mental health, yeah. What are some like hallmark qualities of a, a good community or uh, say if someone doesn't have a community, right? Yeah. How can they identify one community from the other as far as like, should I belong to this or is this community toxic to me? Because yeah. um, community can be also be bad if um, that community is like tearing you down That's or, a great yeah, point. or yeah. judging you, you know? That's so back to the yeah. whole point of, um, of importance of language, because I think 
the right community is going to use the right language to reach you or empower mm -hmm, you or mm -hmm. inspire you, you know? Mm -hmm, yeah. So mm -hmm. uh, can you speak a little bit about like, what are some things that somebody could look for in a community? Yeah. Whether it's like a sports team or yeah. an art form or yeah. whatever else, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, like there, I think there are different points of connection, right? So one point of connection might be like, like you said, like a sports team, right? Like this is something that I enjoy doing, right? And so I'm amongst other people who enjoy doing that, doing this thing. So, so uh, like interest base, yeah. interest base, right? Okay. Yeah, and that that thing in itself might be um, what brings you into the group. But then while you're when you're in the group, there may be deeper intimacy that develops over time because you're hanging out with these people who all enjoy doing the same thing, right? So that can be a point of connection to a sense of belonging. Um, I th I think about you know, how I feel, do I feel like I can show up as my full self in a community, right? I think this is actually, do people know about soul? Huh? On this podcast, do they know about soul? Uh, no, we haven't talked about okay. it. Okay. <laughs> soul is great. <laughs> and it's a group of friends that, that me and uh, them belong to. And I think that's, that was one of my real first experiences of like, a deep sense of belonging. I'm going to cry. <laughs> a deep sense of belonging um, because I felt like I could show up fully as myself at Seoul. And that's how I knew that I had found a sense of belonging. Like I didn't have to hide parts of myself. Um, so I think, you know, if you can find yourself in a space where you feel like you can be you and you don't have to cut off parts of yourself for a sense of like attachment, um, then you found a nice community to belong to. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's very it's very touching. So the theme that I hear is uh, being being confident and being visible when the armor's down. Mm, yes, yes. If you can drop the armor and be safe, that's that's gold. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I really like where this is going. Mm -hmm. um, so, Aaron, you you've been involved in like several different communities, whether it's soul or African mm -hmm. dance mm -hmm. and. Um, urban choreography, right? Mm. Can you speak about, a little bit about like, um, maybe how mental health is viewed in these different communities, whether there's like similarities mm. or is, is one community more open towards um, these conversations than others? Because you also Gosh. went to um, to Ghana to study dance, right? Like, yeah. Actually, actually, I went to Ghana on a service learning trip in grad school. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I do study West African dance. This trip, there was one day that we spent at the University of Ghana studying dance, but for the most part, we were over there. And shout out to ASB Ghana. Um, it's an organization that takes students from college over to Ghana and other places in Africa now as well. Um, so. Can we put that in the show notes or something? We'll talk about that later. Um, but yeah, so that trip was really a service learning trip. Um, but as far as the conversation around mental health in different communities, I see now, even within the dance community, the conversation growing more just because I think the conversation around mental health is, is just really, really um, burgeoning right now. Um, but typically, I don't think people... And my historically, I don't feel like the communities I've been a part of have like explicitly said mental health, right? Okay. Um, so, for instance, like I um, and my uh, for my master's program, I had to write a thesis to graduate, and I wrote my thesis on the impact of West, Af West African dance on positive mental health. And so, um, you will hear people, I think, when they dance, talk about, and this was what the research showed, talk about, like, I'm going to get my healing, right? Like, I'm going to class, like, to get my healing, right? So I was interested in, like, well, what do you mean when you say that? 
Right? Like what, what is it about this practice that you feel to be healing? Now, I 100% know this to be true, right? Like I'm not questioning that it is healing, but I was interested in like, can we really like kind of make more explicit or tease out the parts of the, the form that are healing? Um, so one, just moving your body, right? We already know there's tons of research on exercise and what that does for the body. Um, but the piece about mindfulness, right? So when I'm moving and I'm focused on moving in the music, I'm in the moment, right? That in itself is positive mental health, right? Um, for uh, African-Americans, there's this deeper sense of uh, ethnic identity and ethnic pride that can come from participating in the community, which is correlated with positive mental health, right? Um, and the other piece was, so there's mindfulness, a sense of community and belonging. Uh, and there was one more that is escaping me right now, but it's gonna come back if I keep talking. Uh, a sense of belonging, what we've been talking about the entire time, right? So so the drum and dance community is 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 pretty small, at least in LA, right? And it's very tight knit, right? And you see the same people at class all the time, right? Like we 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 gather outside of class, like we we have different events that we all come to together. And so there's there again is that piece about the importance of a sense of community and and helping to um, support your mental health, you know. So Mm-hmm. Wow, mm-hmm. all that is is amazing. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about like the importance of um, self talk. Okay, yeah, self talk can lead to self hate or self love, right? So can. let's let's talk about self talk. Absolutely, uh, yeah. How how important is it? How can we have like a better dialogue with ourselves? Mm. Um, you know, I, I think the first thought, the first initial thought, can dictate what happens next for a person. Mm-hmm. Whether like they allow possibility to come into their life, right, mm-hmm. or they say things like. Uh, I am never going to make it, mm-hmm. right? Which is a pretty close statement. Yeah, never is 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 ultimate. Is ult- exactly. You know, never is ultimate. It's unchanging. Exactly. Right, and then <laughs> versus changing to something like, I can learn to be better, or I can yeah. try one more thing. You know, yeah. so that, um, even though it acknowledges it may be like hard, but there's still possibility to change from this state, right? So let's talk about the um, yeah. points of self-talk. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. One of the things that came up when you were talking is um, in cognitive behavioral therapy, one of the things that we look for in somebody's thought process, like absolute language, very rigid, black and white, like I will never, or this always happens. And it's like, well, there may be exceptions to that, right? Like if you really looked at your life, there may be times where you were able to do something successfully, right? Um, you know, but when we're in that kind of negative mind state, whether it be the result of trauma or, you know, some other mental health issue, it can be really hard to see possibility and it can be really hard to see the gray area, right? We only see the black and white. Um, so again, this is another place where I'm a, a huge proponent of mindfulness, right? Because I think the first step is to become aware of our self-talk, right? Like what what is the constant dialogue <laughs> that's running in my head all the time? What's the quality of that, you know? And then once you kind of get an awareness of what that is, you can intervene with some of the language that you were using, right? Slight little changes in your thought process opened up the space for possibility, right? Um, One of the things that I use personally in my life that I found really helpful was the use of a self-compassion practice to kind of change my self-talk. Um, so there's a, a woman named Dr. Kristen Neff, uh, and she did a lot of research around the practice of self-compassion and the three components are one mindfulness, right? So acknowledging like I'm experiencing suffering right now, like this is tough, right? 
Um, the second component is acknowledging your common humanity. We all experience tough situations. This is a part of being human. So, so like, um, in line with what you said earlier yeah. is, uh, by acknowledging your humanity or your place amongst everything else, yes. you're remo removing yourself from a place of isolation. Beautiful. Exactly. And you're coming, you're bringing yourself back into connection with the human race. Like we all experience difficulties. Exactly. Um, and I think that's a sidebar. That's a hallmark of, you know, you know, a lack of mental, good mental health is that sense of isolation. Right. And then the third one, the third component of the self-compassion practice is like uh, saying something kind to yourself or, or even doing a kind gesture to yourself. So placing your hands over your heart and saying, may I be at peace. Right. Or, you know, I didn't do it well today, but I'll try again tomorrow. Or, you know, this moment doesn't define me or whatever it may be, but just showing yourself some compassion in that moment. And it tends to be that over time that softens that really kind of rigid negative self-talk that we have about ourselves. So, yeah, you know, I, I really wonder how common negative self-talk is because, oh, uh, yeah. you know, speaking uh, yeah. personally and mm -hmm. not, not anybody else, just me, right? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so speaking personally, like say for, uh, it, before it was typically very easy and maybe even natural, I guess easy and natural can go hand in hand, right? Mm. Um, for me to like do something for somebody else. Yeah. But when it came to like me receiving it, yeah. instead of just receiving it, uh, yeah. my self-talk or my mind uh, inserted before anything else happened is like, do I deserve this? You know? Yeah. 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 yeah Definitely exactly. negative self-talk right there. Exactly. Right. And who knows when those kind of like ideas about yourself came into being. Typically it, it happens that again, early childhood experiences, impact the, you know, the way we think about what we deserve in our self-worth. Um, and so then we spend a lot of our lives, once we become aware of that, trying to work ourselves back from that or um, really shifting that narrative, that dialogue that's going on inside of our heads. And I think it's important to know that like it's possible. Neuroplasticity is a thing. You know, we can rewire our brains to be more compassionate towards ourselves and towards other people. So. I love that. Yeah. Um, so impact, huh? Let's talk about how these past two years has impacted or, or maybe even changed yeah. uh, mental health. Why these last two years, I mean, since the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, definitely wasn't around for the the, uh, the, the, the flu in 1912, 1919. I forgot Spanish the years. Flu? Yeah, Spanish yeah, flu. Yeah. Uh -huh. But, you know, experiencing this first thing, um, it has to have brought up mental health to so many people. Oh gosh, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what have you noticed? What, what can you say about that? Yeah, <laughs> it was rough. I mean, it's, I guess we're a bit more out of the woods, but it was rough, you know? Like, again, like we're designed to be in connection with each other and we have to isolate from each other, you know? Um, I think you can probably see all over the news, like the increase in rates of anxiety, depression, um, domestic violence, substance use, you know, everything, you know, over the course of the pandemic, over the course of the pandemic, is that better? Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, I think it definitely brought the conversation around mental health even more to the forefront. Um, I was working throughout that, right? And, you know, I, I so I'm, I was living in a studio apartment, right? Um, and I was working for an organization that shall remain nameless. Um, and when the pandemic hit, we all had to work from home. 
And so my studio apartment literally had a bed <laughs> and my little bean bag. Like it was, it was good for me. Right. But it wasn't necessarily the space that I was planning to be doing therapy in, <laughs> you know, for months on end until I moved. Um, and so I had to catty corner this bean bag against the wall with my, you know, <laughs> with my certifications to make it look like I had the office space. And so I'm holding space for people, right. Or trying to hold space for people the best I can while in the midst of or the context of a global pandemic, right? So I'm cut off from a lot of my own resources, like dance classes that I would be going to or other communities. So the con connection and community part was cut off. The connection and community part was cut off, right? And not only that, like, you know, but the, my part of my community was how I practice dance, which is a huge part of what keeps me sane. Um, so not only the, the community uh, what the community was also tied to your practice. Can, exactly, exactly, which is what was, was what was really difficult. You know, I did, um, you know, they started having classes outdoors and things like that, which I think was really, really great. And I mean, the added benefit of like the sun while you're dancing to this is great. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was hard initially. And, you know, we did the best we could, you know, with like. Did, did you, did you find that um, either, an increase in volume or new types of clients showed up because yeah. maybe they never had yeah. to experience or they never had to ponder about yeah. mental health before, but now yeah. it's like social isolation for such a long time. Yeah. Now they're, um, mm -hmm. I guess, turned on to it. Yeah. I mean, where, where I'm working at the, where I was working at the time, the, and I think this was also because everything was virtual that the uh, one, we were just getting more people who were seeking services, but also the people who are already in services started showing up more <laughs> to their appointments. Also because they didn't have to leave, they couldn't leave the comfort of their own homes. Like, and so I think also with the advent of, you know, the use of technology to facilitate therapy, there's been a lot more people, you know, um, you know, using the services too. So I think the pandemic hugely shift the conversation around mental health. And it's gonna be interesting to see too, how it continues to unfold and the impact that this has had on us, you know, as the pandemic kind of comes to a close, um, you know, um, what the long-term effects of the pandemic has been on our, on our mental health, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, would you say that uh, the pandemic brought in more people who needed mental health, but mm. would it, did it also increase the amount of people who are lifelong practitioners now? Because now they, they see the importance of it, right? And now they, they're gonna make it a both. part of like their yeah. daily, yeah. Yeah, did I you, could see that being both. I could definitely see that being. Yeah, well, one of the things I really okay. admire was uh, seeing certain communities really come together and adapt yeah. and, and make the most of the situation. Exactly. And, yeah. and uh, yeah. uh, you know, whether it's like teachers trying to teach online yeah. or, yeah. But, but they were still trying to like find a way to yeah. reach out and offer their services yeah. with everything that's going on. And yeah. I think that was really wonderful to see. Yeah, demonstrating our resilience as humans. Yeah, well, you know, we made it out of other things, you know, and, and I mean like we, you know, you know, despite this being a horrible situation, like our, where we were technologically, I think made it a lot easier for us to navigate if we didn't have a lot of the resources that we have now. So yeah, so we definitely demonstrated resilience, yeah. What are some tools that somebody could use to um, support themselves? And do these tools differ if you're approaching someone else on the topic of mental health? Yeah, I think that's really important to remember, like especially for me as a therapist, is like it's not one size fits all. Um, and so, yeah, so that's kind of a, I can answer kind of generally about like some, some tools that I use for myself and that I've, I've, um, suggested for clients, 
But really, it's like everybody's different. Everybody has a different nervous system. Everybody has a different set of experiences and things that are going to connect with them versus someone else. Um, so for myself, I'm a huge proponent of like movement, right? Like, you know, I can't recommend exercise, you know, but if you have a physical practice, you know, keep doing it or turn up the volume on it, right? I say that a lot of times, like you might already have things in your life that you're doing that support your mental health and maybe you just don't realize that. And so I may just get more, more explicit about like, Hey, you know how you meet with your friends every so often to just talk and catch up, make sure you do that. Like every, you know, at whatever interval, you know, it works for you. Cause that's belonging, right. That's, that's making sure that you're not isolating. Right. Um, uh, I'm a huge proponent of mindfulness. I'm a huge proponent of also basic self-care, right? So sleep is a huge one. And maybe you've experienced this, like if you can't get sleep, get good sleep, that really does impact your mental health in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, as I got older, sleep has suddenly become such a good friend. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I guess back to the awareness uh, yeah. thing, I, I wasn't as in tune and aware of how much yeah. good sleep did to me before, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. Yeah, a good night's rest like can take care of a lot. And, you know, when we experience trauma, a lot of times people who are experiencing like PTSD or trauma, um, they have a hard time getting good sleep, which only exacerbates, you know, their symptoms. Um, and so, yeah, so things that, things that you can do to help you rest is really important too. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, so what I'm hearing uh, from you gives me a lot of a uh, definition for one of the branches, right? And that's, if I understand you right, it's um, mental health can be a uh, a thought, right? And mm -hmm. being aware of your thoughts mm -hmm. and being aware of how your thoughts informs your decisions. Yes. Yeah. And also it can be, it can be an action like movement therapy or an exercise. Yeah, and it's exactly. not necessarily this, um, this thing that's reserved for hotlines or this thing that's no, reserved for yeah. when someone's on the couch, like listen yeah. to you, you know? Yeah. It's always happening, right? Yeah. It's always just like your physical, physical health is not just when you go to the doctor, right? Like it's always present with us and it's probably driving a lot more of our lives than we realize, right? Like you said, like, you know, these, the space that you're in with your mental health is probably going to influence how you show up in the world and your relationships It's going to influence the types of decisions that you make. So yeah, it's something that's always with us. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, true words probably have never been said because, mm -hmm. you know, let's say something happens to you and yeah. you're still maybe putting it in the back burner or you don't process it. And then you show up and stick to someone else and yeah. you start yelling at them. Right. And then there goes how that language influences that person. Exactly. Exactly. What is it? Trauma that is not transformed is transmitted, ah. right? Anything that we don't work through, we kind of can't help but really carry into other areas of our life. I think we can compartmentalize to a certain extent as humans, but eventually like the dams, the levees break. You know? what, what, do you, what do you envision um, the future of mental health be either 100 or 1000 years? Oh, and God. so <laughs> let me uh, like elaborate on where, where this is going, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. So there, there's a show that I, I really have gotten to uh, enjoy. It's okay. Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> I can't recommend the show enough. It has so many things. I think it's, it's modern and I don't want to say woke because I think there's people who have taken that mindset too far yeah. and and uh, yeah. turned into a destructive thing. Mm -hmm. But let's just say it's very informed. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's very informed on how we have advanced um, as a society, right? So some of the things that Star Trek Discovery uh, shows is like, 
in in the future, there's there's no more race wars. Mm. There's no more race wars. In fact, mm. actually, we're, we're, as humans, we're not even concerned if someone someone something else is um, <laughs> is an alien species, right? So mm-hmm. on that show, they show um, different different species and different uh, humans of color mm-hmm. being in roles of power, whether it's like a, mm-hmm. a black captain mm-hmm. or an alien captain, you know? Mm-hmm. And then they're just going about the day as if, as if compassion and, and being kind is all that matters. Mm. And, and so- Evolution. Yeah, right, it, it, it's, it's great, it's <laughs> yeah, great. And, yeah. um, and how that the show differs from other shows is yeah. it doesn't revolve around so much of like an uh, impeding alien invasion mm-hmm. as much as like our quest just to discover new things. Mm. And they have some hints of, uh, they, they, they can make some hints that like, okay, here's how we address this issue, issue right? So for one of, one, of, one of which is like, if they're out in deep space and they find a new planet, right? Mm-hmm. And if that planet has never been contacted, mm-hmm. they will not interfere with that planet's development. Mm. Meaning they're not going to colonize that planet. Mm-hmm. They're just going to leave it alone and let it be, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. um, <laughs> there, there, there's, there's even uh, like LBGT characters. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, maybe it is my own um, understanding on the outside, so it could be different if you're in that community, right? Mm-hmm. But it seems to represent that, that those roles very well. Mm-hmm. For example, um, there, there is a there's two characters on the uh, the show, right? Actually, one of them is named Paul Stamets, by the way. His name what? Paul Stamets. Paul Stamets. Stamets. You know who Paul Stamets is? No, who's that? Paul Stamets is the world's leading mycologist. Leading? Mycologist? Mycologist? Yeah, have you seen the documentary Fantastic Fungi? No. Okay. Well, anyways, um, they paid an ode to uh, Paul Stamets, right? Okay. But Paul Stamets and the other doctor, um, they're, they're, they're in relation together, right? And they're both queer, oh, you, know, okay. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, so yeah. It, it's like, they they are in relationship and they're part of the crew and yeah. it's never a po- any point of like, yeah. like the, the show. It just exists. Yeah, it, yeah. it just exists and love yeah. is love, right? You yeah, know? exactly, yeah. And yeah. there's actually even a character that um, is taking on a uh, symbiotic, uh, symbiotic partnership with another being, right? Uh-huh. And by taking on that um, symbiotic relationship, yeah. you're inheriting all the ancestors ancestors who, and memories of that symbiote's memory. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. and so they refer to themselves as they, them. Oh, Because wow. it's actually multiple people in one person, right? Ooh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and the, 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 the character who plays that is, um, is, a half Vietnamese and I think half Caucasian uh-huh. trans actors. Oh wow! Yeah, okay, yeah. It's so a lot of great representation. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I, I mean, I'm on the outside, so I don't, I don't know if yeah. that's really accurate. Yeah. But I, I like how um, it, the, these roles are represented in the future. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, we finally overcome all this stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that sounds beautiful, and I, you know, hopefully that's where we're headed. I think, you know, that was. I mean, it's a. He's just thinking about the next 100 to 1,000 years. Mm, I think that, and I think I've heard in like people that I really respect, um, uh, especially in conversations around um, mindfulness and, and different practice that help us like evolve our brain, that I feel like there's so much great information out there on ways that we can now, be, we are responsible for our own evolution in a lot of ways, right? Like we can practice our way towards being more 
kind and compassionate, you know, human beings. Um, and so like, I think if more people, the more that people have access to like these types of technologies and these types of practices, you know, hopefully the more that we can evolve towards this like beautiful, you know, representation of the future. Um, but I feel like a lot of that is really in our hands at this point, you know? Um, so I can't say because it's looking scary right now when I look at the news, you know, but I get encouraged, you know, by folks who are, you know, really doing the work and, and being examples of how, you know, we can take responsibility for our own evolution. Um, so hopefully we get to Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, Star Trek yeah, you, you really got to go to show. I can't yeah. recommend it. Yeah. And, and also, uh, there, there's things that are implied on that show that shows that, okay, We've overcome that. So, for example, yeah. um, no one ever talks about health insurance. Mm -hmm. Like, like whoever's hurt yeah. just 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 gets healed. Just gets healed. Yeah, yeah. it just uh -huh. gets healed. And, and yeah. that that doctor is also very informed on uh, yeah. mental health itself. Yeah. So there was an, a scene where, um, okay, spoiler alert: if anyone hasn't seen the show, there's okay. a scene where the whole crew travels 900 years into the future, right? Okay. Yeah, and then the whole crew is freaking out uh, by trying to keep it together and try to play it cool. Yeah. Because everyone by going into the future that far, all your, your family have died. Oh, God. Yeah, and, and, and um, the, cr the crew was trying so hard to like um, pretend like they weren't affected, you know? Yeah. And finally the doctor was, brought everyone to say, hey guys, let's acknowledge that we're affected by this. There you go. Let's, let's, let's really acknowledge that we're hurt. Mindfulness, right? Let's yeah. acknowledge we are suffering because everybody we know is gone 900 years down the road. Yeah, Yeah. so I, I, I really like that show of how, yeah. how much it, it focuses on like, yeah. um, these ideas and not so not so like oh yeah there's an alien invasion we gotta go yeah, kill somebody you know yeah. it, it's it really more about us it seems like yeah yeah I love that not, yeah. not some foreign enemy but more about us yeah 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 for, for sure yeah um, so let's talk about how things may have evolved meaning um, are there any mental health practices that have uh, got phased out because they weren't effective mm -hmm. or the new research shows that's, that's something better like what's what's been mm. um, your findings mm -hmm. with that? That's a good question. I think one of the things that we're really recognizing now is is a little bit of what I said earlier is not everything is going to work for every person, right? And so <laughs> there are a lot of different modalities and ways to practice now. And there are a lot of different, what they call as evidence-based practice. So basically systems of practicing therapy that people have developed um, and done research around, you know, that to show that they are helpful for certain groups of people. Um, but oftentimes a lot of the research for these modalities are done with like college students, right? So it's a very particular group of people. A lot of time people of color are left out of those studies. And so we can't say because something works for one group of people that it's going to work for everyone. And so I think that's a bit, been a big part of the conversation lately in mental health is like, you know, you really want to be client led, you know, and like ask yourself like, and ask and, and collaborate with the client, like versus kind of that more top down hierarchical I'm the psychoanalyst, I'm the psychoanalyst, you're the client, like, I'm all knowing, you know, and I'm going to heal you somehow, you know, I think there's much more of an understanding that this is a collaborative process. And the relationship is really key to that. And the intervention needs to be something that resonates with the client, right? I'm not going to do therapy on you. I'm going to do therapy with you. So I think that's a big shift that's happened in mental health. So well, I, I love that. Yeah. Um, so one thing I'm hearing from all that is the 
the need for the client to take uh, initiative and take yeah. action and participate in this whole process yeah. mm -hmm. versus either expecting or submitting to someone else just taking control exactly, of their experience. Exactly. And you know, as a consumer of mental health, like if you don't feel like there is a good connection with the therapist, give us some time, you know, like in a relationship to see if it's a good fit. But if it's not a good fit, you know, then maybe you need to explore other options. And I think sometimes people think just like with maybe you feel like you get stuck with a medical doctor, like this is my doctor, you know, but with therapy, I personally feel there's a much different level of intimacy in the therapeutic relationship. And so if you don't feel like you can trust somebody or like they can hold what you need them to hold, like then seek somebody who you feel like is a better fit for you, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Speaking of seeking, seeking other things out, mm -hmm. let's talk about sense and sensitivity. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So when I think of this concept, I think of, uh, okay, being sensitive is yeah. where something affects you, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas sensitivity is being aware of what's happening mm -hmm. to, to a high degree mm -hmm. and allowing it to inform you, but not necessarily being affected by it. Mm. Yeah. So say that for me one more time. I understand that. So, so like uh, being sensitive okay. is letting something affect you. Okay. Yeah. Like, like, uh, like, say for example, I noticed this thing is happening, and now it's affecting me. It's bringing me down, and it's it's heavily um, influencing me. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas ha having sensitivity without being effective, or sorry, having sensitivity without being sensitive is being able to be aware of these things, but still preserve what's happening uh, here and okay. not be affected by it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So having, so being sensitive, it sounds like it's almost like you have no control over how something impacts you mm -hmm. and it can like drag you down. Mm -hmm. Whereas sensitivity is being aware of the impact of something, but I guess being able to kind of maintain your mm -hmm. own kind of like homeostasis in yeah. the process. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and what's the question around that? Is like, yeah. Yeah. So like, uh, what's been your findings with that? Like how, how do you gain sensitivity yeah. without being sensitive to, to what's happening? Because yeah. I think sometimes, um, yeah. uh, maybe this is just true for all providers is like, you guys have sensitivity, right? And so you're, you're being informed uh, your patients, it, but it, how do you not be it. affected by that? Yeah. You know? Great question. Great, great question. <laughs> you, um, I find for myself, like when I'm doing my own work, you know, and I'm really one of the, one of the kind of mantras I say to myself or prayers I say before I see clients sometimes is may I have the space to hold the space, right? So may I have enough spaciousness inside of my nervous system, right? May I be regulated enough to be able to, you know, take in this other person and, and, and be with them in their experience, but also not like you said, be taken down into the state that they're in, right? So it's it's a it's an it's dance, right? It's the art because like I want to like empathize, right? Like I want to be able to access the parts inside of myself that maybe feel sad or you know can really connect with that emotion. Otherwise, the client might not feel like I'm there with them, right? They might feel like we're cut off and like I'm supposed to be human as a therapist, like you don't want me to not be in my humanity because then I'm no good to you, you know? Um, so one of the ways that I think I'm able to like increase my capacity to hold space, so feel the emotion, but not be kind of like taken down by it uh, is by my practices, you know? So I try to make sure that I do my meditation practice. I try to make sure that I exercise regularly, that I, that I do my own work of walking through the things that I'm afraid of in my life and, and things like that. And I think, those things help me to be more spacious inside of myself so that I can be with somebody else in their experience um, and hold space for it without us both coming down to that 
to that space um, that's not helpful for either one of us, you know, to stay in. So great, great insight. Yeah. Do, you, do you have any any um, thing you can share as far as how to increase one's sensitivity? Because I think sometimes uh, without a sensitivity approach, mm -hmm. uh, things can be dismissed or mm -hmm. shut down. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I've noticed that in others and also in myself, where yeah. like um, I definitely. Ran into a lot of situations where like, damn, I wish I had more sensitivity to that. Uh, but, uh, I, but learning it after the fact, you know, like yeah. so, like what are some things that you went through to um, increase your sensitivity to either your patients or different yeah. groups, whether it's yeah. like a PLC group or a non PLC yeah. group, you know? Um, that's a good question. I mean, so like I think working through your own mm -hmm. experiences. Like I have a therapist, and I've had this therapist. So in grad school, we're actually required to have a therapist, which I highly recommend if you're going to be a therapist, um, to know what it's like to be on the other side of the couch. Um, and so we had to do 30 hours of psychotherapy. I've been with her since we started years and years ago. Amazing woman. Um, and so doing your own work and I think digesting and processing your own experiences is a huge way to increase your sensitivity. Because I think part of the thing that I think has us push other people's suffering or pain away is when we're not acknowledging our own suffering or pain. And would you say that yeah. by acknowledging or processing your yeah. own experiences, yeah. you gain connection and relevance to someone else's experience? Exactly. Right. And it doesn't have to be the same experience, like, but like take your, your life's curriculum, do your work, mm -hmm. right? And I think the more that you do your work, the more you have the ability to hold space for people doing their work, so. So really being able to uh, yeah. learn and work yeah. through the process helps yeah. inform yeah. and increase yeah. sensitivity. Yeah, and slowing down, I think, is another big one. Um, that's, I'll say it, I've said it before, I'll say it again, that's why I think mindfulness is so huge. Like slowing down and really getting connected to what feelings feel like inside of your body. That's a good topic. We definitely got to yeah. unpack that because I, yeah. I think, um, I, I live in the Bay Area, so yeah. it's very, very expensive. Yeah. Uh, and I noticed that people here don't slow down. Pro yeah. probably, probably not that, that much different from New York, right? So yeah. mm -hmm. let's talk about like the impacts yeah. of societal pressures to be productive yes. versus allowing us to rest. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I mean, I'm guilty of it too. Like I have to make sure that I like, you know, really take the time to like slow down and tune into myself. Is one of the reasons that I'm really loving the study of dance movement therapy. Because I'm finding um, in practice with my supervisor, she helps facilitate me through something called authentic movement. And a big part of that process is literally slowing down to listen to and respond to sensations in my own body, right? And the amount of like quiet I have to like get to to really be able to feel that and respond to that. I've, I, I leave the practice like feeling like the whole world has gone shh. <laughs> you know, and when it, when it's, shh, then I can be more perceptive. I can be more in tune with what's going inside of me and, and around me. Um, yeah. So any practice that you can do to kind of pull yourself from the constant machine of like doing, doing, which again, very guilty of, especially when I was, when I was younger, um, I think is, you know, the more you can slow down, it's really going to be helpful to you to tune in more, you know, one of the things that I was talking to a friend about the other day, which you probably agree with is like, I don't think there's a lot of space to be bored now. Like you can always occupy your mind with something. So, right. You could be listening to this podcast, <laughs> you know? Um, but like on my downtime, like, am I scrolling? And this is not to demonize social media. Cause I think it definitely serves a purpose, but if every one of your free minutes is spent having your mind be active, you can't hear your own voice, right? You can't hear yourself enough to be in tune with yourself enough to, to be in tune with others, I think in a really um, 
substantial way to really be present, you know? Um, so I think slowing down is just super important. Yeah. It, it sounds like on the other side of the coin of slowing down is, uh, minimizing distractions Yes, and allowing yourself your thoughts to unfold yeah. as they may be, whatever it is. Daydream, right? like be bored. Like, like so much creativity comes from that space of like having some space, <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, so I would say the theme of like, for me as at different times in my life, the theme has been like slow down and create space for something to emerge. But if there's no space, like God can't get through, like you gotta have space for that, yeah. Yeah. What What are some things? What What are some other things you do in movement dance dance therapy? Yeah. Like what are some exercises? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and is yeah. movement dance therapy an accessible program, or is unique to what you're doing in LA, or can yeah. it like like only for people in certain regions? Like where can people? That's a really that? good question. Um. So let's see. I'll answer the that question first, and then go back to the one about other exercises. Um. So <clears throat> a lot of the programs are on the East Coast. Um, and so they have programs that you can go to that are two year programs, uh, and you'll come out not only licensed as a dance movement therapist, or, um, I think credentialed as a dance movement therapist, um, but you can also have the educational requirements necessary to get licensed as a mental health professional, right? So for instance, like I'm an MFT, right? Licensed marriage and family therapist. That's a separate license than the dance movement therapy. That's a separate credential that I have to do. But there are programs that you can go to where you can go through and you can have the education for both. And then you get out and you just get licensed. Since I was already licensed as a therapist, I went, I took what they call the alternate route. I'm taking the alternate route um, through the American Dance Therapy Association. So I'm taking, I'm finding teachers who are certified to teach the classes within the kind of coursework for dance movement therapy um, and taking those independently. And then I'm, and, and over the summer, I'm going to start doing more of my practicum hours. Uh, and then that'll bring me towards being a registered dance movement therapist. So a lot of the programs are on the East Coast, but on the West Coast, there is an alternate route that you can take if you're interested in that. So, so that's on the practitioner side. Yeah. What about on the uh, the patient side? Yeah, on the patient side, um, you can actually go to the American Dance Therapy Association website, I believe, and you can look up practitioners in your area. So if you're interested in being a, a client, um, they have a directory. So, okay, so yeah. what I'm hearing is yeah. movement dance therapy is pretty accessible. Yeah, okay, yeah. It's not it just isolated to like the East Coast. No, it's not just isolated to the East Coast. There's there's definitely practitioners out here on the West Coast. Um, yeah, it's it's not as definitely not as common as you know a more um, traditional psychotherapy, but there are definitely practitioners here on the West Coast too. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Great, great info. Let's talk about uh, how pop culture or social media may mm -hmm. influence like this whole field of, of mental health. So, mm, you know, question, yeah. definitely Facebook, uh, Instagram, yeah. pretty much all the big tech companies are constantly fighting for our, our attention, yes. showing things that either uh, excites us or makes us angry, yeah. you know, or um, maybe the illusion that things are perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, that's a whole nother episode uh -huh. and I have so many thoughts that they're all jumbled together. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh gosh. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine recently uh, and I think she watched a whole documentary on influencers um, and how there's actually like um, at kind of like a higher rate of suicide amongst people who choose that profession. And I think part of it has to do with kind of constantly having to portray a certain image of yourself. Right. And it's like when you're when you're constantly in a state of 
trying to portray, you know, or, or uh, an image of yourself or doing like impression management all the time. Like, I wonder how that impacts our ability to, to authentically understand who we are, right? Because if we're like, if our personality is being shaped by likes and by what people want to see, right? Like we may push other parts of ourselves away, right? Or not really tune into ourselves because we're like hyper-focused on how other people are perceiving us. It, it seems, correct me if I'm wrong yeah. or misinformed, but it mm -hmm. seems like the opposite of what we talked about earlier mm -hmm. in the regards of uh, finding the right group yeah. where you can let your armor down yeah, and be seen and exactly, celebrated that exactly. versus going yeah. down a path where yeah. you have your armor on. Yeah. All the time. All the time. All the time. You're trying to like, you know, portray it, portray yourself in a certain way. Now it's not to say that people don't can't and don't use social media in a conscious way and like, you know, are authentic about how they show up in that space. But, you know, it, it, I think that there is a large percentage of folks who um, allow the way people view them and, again, likes to shape their identity, right? Yeah, you know, I, I've seen older groups uh, of parents successfully use Facebook for doing things like reconnecting with their yes. high school or childhood mm -hmm. friends that they would never, ever exactly. discovered. Yeah. So I think there is some some room there. And yeah. obviously, you know, we we have a good footing on Facebook itself and exactly. it's how we connected, right? So yeah. not to say that it's all evil, it's definitely agnostic, yeah. agnostic but um, yeah. maybe, maybe the real danger is like in younger people yes. with yeah. social media access. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that you're adding that to the question, to the conversation because, you know, I think everything has its like light side and its shadow side, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, so yeah, I think it can definitely be this wonderful tool of connection, you know, um, which is again, back to that basic need that we have as humans, right? Which I think was, you know, I think often, you know, if you hear people who uh, started social media say the reason that we did this is because we want to, people to be more connected. And I think that that is definitely one of the benefits of it. Um, but I think one of the drawbacks of it is I think sometimes as humans, we don't like people to see the ugly side of ourselves, you know, or the side of ourselves that, you know, we feel like is less acceptable, you know, or we have shame around. And so if we can, if we're constructing whole identities that leave out parts of ourselves, you know, um, I think we can kind of get lost. You know? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that social media highlights is the need for quantity over quality. Because mm. I think focusing on relationships, focusing on your own inner work, yeah. it's it's like, or the quality relationships, you know, yeah. it's definitely not a numbers game. Yes. It's, it's like an experience exactly. game, right? But exactly. social media has introduced like, okay, yeah. well, I got 50 yeah. likes on this photo, yeah. Yeah. so therefore I should do more of it. Or this person got a hundred yeah. or 3000, so exactly. therefore they're better than me. Exactly, right? Like you're, you're, you're gauging your worth based off of that. Not to mention like every one of those likes is a hit of dopamine, right? Yeah, and yeah. there's something to be said about gauging your worth on people's opinions that you have no idea who they are. That part. <laughs> you, have, you have no idea who they are. That part, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, I mean, especially for young people, like we're so, we're so insecure. Like I remember being a teenager, like, you know, if a thousand people said they liked me, I'd go on social media too, you know? So I think <laughs> it's really, you know, uh, I think a piece of it is I've heard that they're trying to come out with like some sort of legisla legislation around like social media hygiene, right? Like, cause we're, we're adapting to this thing that our biology is not necessarily ready for, right? So how do we do this in a responsible way? You know what? I, so would it be fair to say that qualitative goes hand in hand with mindfulness? 
Say that again? Would it be fair to say that qualitative goes hand in hand with mindfulness? Qualitative goes hand in hand with mindfulness. Can you explain that more to me? Yeah. yeah like for example, um, instead of just saying, oh yeah, I have 1000 friends, yeah. you know, that's quantitative, yeah. right? Uh -huh. And say, say, oh yeah, I had this great conversation with this one friend, Boom. very qualitative, Boom. and then there's mindfulness to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know why when you said that, I thought about like the gratitude list that I try to do daily is like, you know, there's a million things that I could focus on, right? I could focus on, you know, you know, the likes that I didn't get on some posts, right? Or I could say, I'm really grateful for this amazing conversation that I had yesterday with Vin because it really just opened me up to some new ideas and I felt really connected to him and I feel like our friendship is really strong. Like being in that space, right? And now I'm just talking about one friend, right? One conversation that we had and my nervous system is like, mm. <laughs> you know, like connection, right? Versus like a thousand likes, which is nice, you know, but it's that quality is not necessarily there. Yeah. Yes. Um, great point, man. Like I, okay. So maybe if we can, I think what I want to say is maybe social media distracts us to the wrong tribe. Mm. Meaning like now uh, we think our tribe is all the people who like our, mm -hmm. our posts, right? Or all these people mm -hmm. on the internet mm -hmm. uh, that maybe share mm -hmm. whatever is happening. Mm -hmm. Where our true tribe is mm -hmm. the, these, these intimate relationships that mm -hmm. we have. Yeah. And, and that's where yeah. our energy should go. Yeah, I think it's just important to remember because again, like you said, we don't want to like demonize social media. And I know that some beautiful relationships have probably even have, have definitely started because of that. Um, but to remind ourselves like, nothing replaces actual human connection. Nothing replaces what we're doing right now. Like that's just, our biology knows the difference, you know? Yeah, you know what? I, I think that's where the scary part is for um, younger people. Yeah. Younger, I mean like uh, less than 20, yeah. young, young than 20, right? Cause I think in some ways, let's say uh, you watch TV yeah. or you're driving a car. Yeah. There's a clear delineation of when you're doing these activities. Yeah. Versus when you stop, right? Mm. So as soon as you walk away from the living room, you yeah. stop watching TV. Yeah. You get out of the car, you stop driving your car, right? Yeah. But smartphones are there with you all the time. All the time. Yeah. And I think in some ways, smartphones has like replaced, not replaced like as in like it should be replaced, but replaced by via have so many people having it, right? Yeah. Replace human interaction. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think, and I think you'll hear lots of very smart people argue the exact same thing, you know, is that we're taking these like substitutes for human interaction rather than what we really need is you know, direct contact with one another. So absolutely, agree. <laughs> So like uh, now a little more personal question. Mm -hmm. How have you been these past two years, man? Oh yeah. Lord. <laughs> yeah. I've been all over the place. Um, I think I mentioned to you earlier, the pandemic was difficult. You know, it was difficult and it was beautiful at the same time. Cause like difficult because again, was disconnected from a lot of my communities, you know, trying to practice therapy in the, the context and not even just the, the pandemic, but you know, the, the racial, you know, social justice movements, you know, going on after the death of George Floyd and like being in downtown Long Beach when the building was on fire down the street for me, you know. You, um, you know what I, I, uh, I, I, I wish wasn't the case yeah. is I wish a lot of these movements 
remain true to the movements, right? Because I, I think too many people jump on the bandwagon mm-hmm. and, and use it for like political mm-hmm. things. Oh, know? absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, that's I, with anything, though. Yeah, yeah. and I, I, I have to say that that's yeah. that can't help anyone's cause yeah. or mental health. Yeah, you know? yeah. That that's you know. I mean, I think with anything, you have like the essence of what it is, and then you have everything else that comes on top of it. So I don't know that that will ever be able to to change that. You know, Star Trek um, Discovery. There you go. <laughs> that's what we're aiming for. Um, <laughs> You're doing it right. Exactly right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so we had that, we had the freaking attack of the Capitol, like all these, like we weren't navigating just the pandemic. We were navigating so many other things coming to a head, I think in our country. And so like, there's this meme I saw on Instagram. Um, I don't know if I can say that we're not sponsored by them, right? You, you can say <laughs> uh, okay, it. Okay. So right yeah. everyone, okay. It's the internet. So there was a meme that I, I was, I, I would look at from time to time. And it was this, I think it was a character from SpongeBob SquarePants, right? And it's this little dog. And he's sitting at a table, like with a little cup of tea in front of him. And he's looking super calm. And then the world is burning down around him. And it's like being a therapist in 2020. And like, that's exactly what it feels like. It's like, you're trying to maintain, like, it's all good. You know, <laughs> everything's okay. You know, and hold space for somebody when like, in the, the con- in the context that we're in. So, so that was, that was a challenge. That was a hard time. <laughs> um, but at the same time, like I found love, like I met my partner, like we've been together for almost two years now. We live together. Um, with our two cats um, in Long Beach. Um, Amazing. It goes back yeah. to that theme of uh, possibility, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I didn't see that coming. Like he came into my life, life literally uh, right before the pandemic. Um, and then we didn't have anyone else to be around. I definitely didn't have anyone else to be around. And so I started quarantining with him and, and his two roommates at the time. We just went to their wedding, you know, at the end of last year. So this beautiful relationship has come out of it too. So, so it's kind of all over the place. And I'll say that it definitely was one of those things that like, if you ever have those, those situations in your life where it's like, what are you really made of? Like, I know you think you're this kind of person or you, you know, you think that you have like this, this sort of fortitude and resilience, but like, how are you demonstrating that through this situation? So, so it was definitely rough, but I think I'm coming out of it, coming out of it, (laughs) um, just more aware of, uh, more aware of the benefits of being consistent with what I know works for me, if that makes sense. Like I've, I've always, I'm a huge fan and I'll use this word over and over again of practice, right? Like I think everything is practice. And so it was one of those times in my life where it's like, oh, you think you, you meditate, huh? You need it right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you really need to stick to the things that you know helps us, that sustain you, you know? So, mm-hmm. wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How can people uh, best support mental health practitioners? Oh, <laughs> that's funny. Cause I don't really think about people supporting us, but yeah. Supporting yeah Cause like, uh, you know, the, yeah. The, the, um, the pandemic taught me the importance of, supporting medical professionals like mm-hmm. all this is on the front line with covid oh you know okay. yeah and so yeah, yeah. like yeah. someone has to help you guys out you know yeah that's a good question that is a good question this is, i'm just gonna say what's coming to my mind mm-hmm. if you are somehow connected to a mental health practitioner if you're like the partner of one or the friend of one like don't let them pretend like they're okay <laughs> all the time, you know, and recognize that 
we are not perfect, right? Like we are human beings just like you are. We have struggles just like you do. And I think that's part of our power, like that we are human, right? And we acknowledge that. Um, so don't, don't let someone, don't let a mental health practitioner in your life let you think that they're okay because their job is to hold space for other people. Um, check in with them as well as, as you would check in with anyone else. So, so like checking in and reminding that we're all part of that circle, right? We're all a part of this. We're all bozos on the, bozos on the same bus, right? So like we need help too. And so, um, yeah. So I think I think that's what I would say about that. All right, you got <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about, about your background um, and work our way back, you know? Like mm -hmm. how did you get to where you are today? Gosh, that's big. You know, like um, and, and whatever level of details you would like to yeah. share. Um, so I'll, I guess I'll start with, I'll start with my childhood. Um, <laughs> so I was, I was raised a military brat. Uh, my mom was in the Navy. Um, my parents were always separated. So we were very young. We went to go live with my mom. Um, and so we moved around a lot. Like I lived in Virginia, a few, few places in California, I lived in the Bay. I've lived in San Diego, lived in Texas, lived in Puerto Rico for a while. Um, and so I bounced around a lot as a kid. And I think that because of that, I had a little bit of difficulty developing intimacy with people because we wouldn't be around folks for too long. You, you are probably one of the friends that I've had for the longest, right? I think one of the benefits of that is that it lent itself to me being easily adaptable, right? And I can pretty easily like relate to other folks because I'm always interested in like, what are you about? Like, let me get to know you. And I think as a kid, that was like a safety thing for me because like, I don't know anybody in this new space that I'm in, but a really easy way to get to know people is to be nice and be likable and to figure out what it is that they like, right? And so that kind of became my modus operandi for a very long time. So, so like building community through cooperation. Yeah, cooperation, but cooperation, I think, and, and sometimes, um, sometimes maybe not showing up as my full self because I don't know how, one, I don't think I really had any idea of what that is because I wasn't very stable in one place for too long. So my identity, I felt like was always changing, you know? You know, I, I feel like that, that's, that's a very deep, true statement because mm. who really knows themselves at that age, mm. you know? Who really does? Who really does it all, right? But I think especially for kids, you know, when there's not a lot of consistency, you know, um, it can be difficult to really like establish kind of a sense of like, this is what I like, right? And this is my thing, right? I was always kind of more interested in what other people were interested in because I want to make friends. So I think that lent itself to me being a therapist in the way that like, whoever sits down in front of me, like I'm a figure out a way to connect with you, you know, to the best of my, but now it doesn't work hundred percent of the time, but I think I'm pretty easily relatable. So, if I hear you right, it's yeah. like you develop a need and ability to figure out how to connect with the people around you and the yeah. situations around you. Yeah. And that naturally translated to yeah. being a therapist where yeah. it's all about connection. Exactly. Ex beautifully stated. That was a nice reflection, man. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm continually working on is like, well, what's my center? Like, what do I like? What do I believe? What do I? And that's a continued journey, I think, for everyone. But I think the that's just kind of my unique journey towards like really understanding that more for myself. So 
Um, so that, so that's kind of like how I became to be a therapist. Um, how does dance play around, around that? Um, and to, to mental health? Yeah, because you also yeah. do dance therapy and also you're also a dance sir yourself? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so just, I'm, I'm studying dance movement therapy, so I just don't want to misrepresent myself, but um, I'm in the process of becoming a dance movement therapist. Um, but yeah, so, so dance has always been something that was a part of my life, whether it was just like casually doing it. But <clears throat> when I got to um, undergrad in San Diego, Culture Shock Dance Center opened up like down the street from uh, where I went to school my sophomore year. And so I went and I took a couple of dance classes and I just fell in love. Um, and I think it was one of those things that I've, I probably would have always wanted to pursue studying dance. Like I was in talent shows and things like that. And I was always a kid at the party, like cutting a rug. Um, but not until the, I was like grounded in San Diego uh, and there was an opportunity to train that I, I really start studying. So um, I got on scholarship at that studio, um, auditioned for the company and eventually started dancing for them. Um, while I was dancing hip hop on that company, uh, a, a good friend of mine, Sarah Shepich um, from Unity Dance Ensemble. So you, I think you remember Sarah was giving me like ballet lessons. And so I really, honestly, at, at one point, at, at one point it was, I was studying um, more kind of classical European technique because I wanted to see how it helped improve like my lines and things like that for hip hop. Um, and then I fell in love with those dance forms too. Um, and then we started studying house after I met you. And then we met Brian Green and my mind was blown. <laughs> and he said, you know, if you want to understand house more, study African dance. And then I got into African dance. Um, and that just like opened me up in ways that I hadn't been open before. Um, so, so yeah, so dance has always been something that um, has just been a... Um, companion of mine and also I think a litmus test for how I'm doing in my life like I can tell by how I'm moving you know um, and so when I so I after undergrad I took about four years off from school to just work and dance right I throw myself into to the practice and then I decided I want to go back to school I moved up to Long Beach with my partner at the time and I applied to Cal State Long Beach and got in and when we're in school, we're studying technique to be a therapist. And I like distinctly remember thinking, this is just like dance. Like you learn the different methods or interventions or techniques. But like when you're with a client, you have to just like let go and be in the moment, much like dance. Like you can learn steps, but you ultimately have to respond to the music. And so when I saw that connection, I was like, oh, I was like, dance has really given me a leg up in understanding how therapy works. Um, and I think I had, I suspected that somewhere in the world existed something along the lines of dance movement therapy, you know? Um, but I didn't realize that there was a whole organization <laughs> devoted to it called the American Dance Therapy Association. Um, and so, you know, in grad school, there weren't any explicit opportunities in my program to blend movement and psychotherapy. And so I did my thesis you know, around that to allow me to, to, to explore that. Um, and so for my research, I just got to go to a bunch of dance classes. Right. And then like ask people why they dance, you know? Um, and so I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to do that project. Cause I, I think it really, um, now I have this, this thing that I've created, you know, with the thesis that, um, I think is carrying me, um, even further into 
what it would look like to really blend these two passions of mine. So, so yeah, so dance came in because I think that I could have never just sat across from people for the rest of my life and not include movement as a part of that process. Like, it, was there any particular yeah. styles that nudge you yeah. towards the direction of dance movement therapy? Uh, West African. Okay. West African. West African and house, actually. Okay. So uh, yeah. let's let's uh, unpack mm -hmm. why that is. Yeah. Um, I would say West African um, because <clears throat> I think I noticed specifically like the way that we um, practice uh, and the class that I've taken, we do ballet style, which is where we do a movement or a series of movements down the dance floor toward the drummers, right? Um, and then at the end of class, we can typically have this circle where people will go in and they'll, based on the rhythm, you know, solo, freestyle, dance, you know, uh, improv in a way that feels authentic to them, to that rhythm, right? Well, obviously in house dance, there's a similar with the cypher, right? And b-boying and things like that. So I'm like, there's some connection there, <laughs> right? Like to go out into the middle of the space and be supported and being your most authentic self. Like there has to be something like healing about that, right? Um, and so I think that's one of the things that like kind of turned me on to like, okay, maybe there's there's something here, yeah. So to kind of like bring it full circle, yeah, we talked about <laughs> the need for co community, yeah, connection, yeah, the need to be seen yes. in your authentic self, and these styles that you're talking about, yeah, has all these elements yes. inherently, right? Yes. Um, I definitely experienced going to the circle many times, and yeah. you know, if anyone ever wanted to feel like what it's like to be seen. Your your real self, yeah. Step into a dance circle. That is yeah. your real self. You know? Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Whether you like it or not, uh, whether yeah. you, you want to hide or not, yes, you can't. You can't. It's yeah. I hate to make absolute statements, but here I That's go making true. one. You know? <laughs> that yeah, is an yeah. absolute statement. Like when yeah. when you yeah. go to a dance circle, yeah. whoever you are, whatever yeah. form, wherever you are, yeah, will show up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that's one of the things is like, it keeps you so honest, right? Like, cause whoever you are is going to come up in that moment, you know? So, so it's like, you notice that feeling or that observation and you notice how it connects to, like, I, I guess a healing or therapy aspect, right? Mm -hmm. Connection, being seen yeah. and also uh, community because yes. these dances happen with each other. With other people, right? Who are supporting you in your expression of your authentic self, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about more about the, the with each other part because I think some, pe some people who are not part of the dancing mm. think dance is all about battles. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. That's so, very true. So yeah. let's break down what that connection, yeah. what that community means in this sense, because uh, maybe dispel the myth that dance is only about battles. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so I'm 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 not entirely sure where we get the impression that dance is all about battles, other than like my assumption of that is like that's what we see on TV or yeah, it's so com 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 competitive exactly. or yeah. Um, and so, but I mean, like when you think about it dance was a, a way of people gathering and coming together and celebrating and you know and I think for most of history it's probably been that mm. I mean I I think the battling I'm sure serves a purpose right like it's what I think about Vogue right like it was a way to fight without your words right or even b-boying probably the same right um, so a way to handle disagreements or 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 even express anger right in a way that's constructive right mm -hmm. through creativity um, but the idea that 
the only time to dance is when I'm battling somebody, right? Like, I think that's probably got capitalism written all over it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, when, when, when I um, taught dance, that, that was definitely a common uh, misconception mm. going in. Not, not saying it's wrong, you know, it, it's just, yeah. if that's it's what's been way. exposed, yeah. then that's exposed, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think it's it's one way you know, that we get exposed to dance, but like... So so you're talking about like the deeper sides of dance where yeah. it's like um, connection, community building and yeah. being seen in your authentic self, yeah. which is, you don't hear anyone say that in like the, the oh, yeah. broad appeal yeah. sense, you know? Like it's all like, here's an absolute statement, which I'm actually taking from Brene Brown, so I'm not going to take credit for it, but like she says, all life is about connection or she has said that in one of her TED Talks. And when I heard that, I was like, yes, right? So like, what was the function of us dancing? It probably wasn't to battle, <laughs> you know, like as dancing came to being, you know, it was probably about bringing people together, you know? And so like, it still serves, it still can serve that purpose these days. And I don't think there's nothing wrong with battling because there's probably ways that you can approach battling. Yeah, there's, there's definitely um, yeah. healthy aspects about battling exactly. where, yeah. it, you know, uh, yeah. violence was averted, Yeah, you know, and yeah. maybe disputes were resolved. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, but I think it's important to just remember that there's like, you know, dance serves so many different functions, you know, outside of just like proving that you're better than someone else. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What are some organizations or resources that people can reach out to for yeah. different um, mental health resources or services? Yeah. yeah. So, um so if you have insurance, one of the ways that you can um, find mental health services is actually just by talking to your doctor. Um, and, you know, hopefully they can connect you to, you know, if your insurance allows for it, they can connect you to a therapist that's contracted through your insurance. Um, you know, there's tons of platforms now for virtual therapy. If you've heard of like BetterHelp or Talkspace, things like that. Again, I'm not advertising for them, but those are some options for you. Um, I know that there's something called Open Path Psychotherapy, uh, which is a platform for um, low fee therapy. I think it's like 30 to 60 bucks a session. Um, and you can log on, join join this platform and then find a therapist who meets kind of whatever criteria you're looking for. Psychology Today uh, is another great website that you can use to find a therapist. Um, we offer at the site that I work at, Reach LA, free services for um, queer, trans, uh, BIPOC people. Um, and so, you know, you can just contact me at Aaron at reachla.org if you're interested in those services. Um, gosh, so many avenues now. Uh, yeah, you could, you could probably just Google <laughs> mental health services now and tons of stuff will pop up because there's a lot of funding going into mental health right now. Oh, really? I'm glad a to hear that. A lot of funding going into Great. mental health yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, and so, um, was that because of the pandemic or I think a big part of it was the pandemic. I think it was happening before, but I think the pandemic really like jumpstarted a lot of it because it was much more part of the conversation you know, as we we're seeing people's mental health decline because of what was going on. So, um, so yeah, so there's, there's so many avenues to services from like nonprofits to, um, the department of mental health, you know, can get you connected to providers, um, you know, through their services. So, um, so yeah, lots of different avenues. Mm -hmm. Great. Mm -hmm. That's good to hear. So my next question, I think a lot of people have come across this at one point or another, mm -hmm. but how do you handle a situation when somebody you know is 
what I would say like uh, as like declining in their mental health mm -hmm. and maybe they should see a professional. Yeah. But you're not sure how to navigate that conversation. Yeah. You're right. Because yeah. the, the pushback is like, oh, you think I need help? You think I'm crazy and so forth, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. what are your tips for navigating that conversation? Yeah. Because, hmm. I, I, yeah. you know, I, I think there are lots of situations yeah. or families or even partnerships mm -hmm. where yeah. that, that may be true and they don't yeah. know how to like take it to the next step, right? Yeah. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is the sensitivity with which you handle that conversation, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so what I want to say is like, how are you expressing your concern, mm -hmm. right? You know, and how are you couching that in like compassion, you know, you know, are you like, you need to go get this taken care of, or you need to go, you know, talk to somebody or is it, you know, I'm a little concerned. I'm like, I'm noticing some shifts, right? Like I'm noticing like, you know, you used to love to, you know, do this thing and now you're not doing it as much anymore. You know, is there something going on? Like, you know, can I help in any way? Do you, do you need, do you need or want access to, to any resources you want to do that together, you know? So I think really back to your word earlier, the sensitivity with which you handle that conversation, I think um, can definitely influence how that conversation goes. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Is, is there anything other specific about that? That yeah. No, it, it's yeah. just, uh, I, I noticed it like, Nothing specific, but yeah. just in general, you know, like mm -hmm. that topic can be difficult to bring up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I think also maybe this is just coming to me, like asking yourself if you are the one to be bringing up that conversation, right? Like, is that, is the relationship between you and this person such that you, you know, feel based on your knowledge of the relationship that like, I am the person to bring this up to this person or are there other people that you want to enlist for that conversation, right? Because maybe they have a more easeful relationship and they can hear it more coming from this other person, right? So the two things I'm hearing are one, acknowledging that you may not be the person to, to do, do all these mm -hmm. things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and enlisting help to help of others. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And two, or yeah, two, if it is you or anybody else mm -hmm. is make sure it's entered with uh, sensitivity. Exactly. And with sensitivity and compassion, right? Like, cause like we all think we all know what it is to struggle, you know? And so like, how would you want somebody to bring that information up to you? I would say err on the side of, <laughs> you know, being gentle because maybe you're somebody here. You're like, you could take somebody being like, you need to get your together, you know? Um, you know, but I, I want to say probably do as do as little violence <laughs> in that conversation as you can, you know, because it can be really sensitive. And I can feel like a really vulnerable space to have somebody reflect something back to you like that. Like, oh, my God, you saw that, you know, you saw me like not being my best self, like that can bring up, you know, shame and things like that. So just being aware of, you know, how you approach that conversation, the sensitivity with which you approach it. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Point well taken. <laughs> So any closing thoughts for our listeners out there? What can you offer as a takeaway? Um, yeah. yeah, anything at all, whether it's uh, someone first tapping into their emotions, yeah. their mental health, or someone yeah. who's, or other practitioners out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess I would say maybe, maybe to do an assessment for yourself of like, you know, if you can look at your physical health and like think about like, how am I, how am I doing with that? Like, how am I taking care of myself in that way? do that same kind of assessment for your mental health, right? So like, how am I feeling, right? Do I know what I'm feeling, right? Do I need to 
pull out a feelings wheel or find some way to help me get more in touch with my emotions. So really doing those slowing down enough to do those check-ins with ourselves to really see like if, you know, maybe we need some extra support, you know? Um, so I guess that would be for people who are interested in and really just assessing their mental health more. If you feel like you need to pr professional help, please reach out. Like there's so many resources these days. Um, so, you know, I can say, don't be afraid. You might still be afraid, but even act if you are afraid, <laughs> you know, um, because you may, like you said, prevent something from snowballing into something much worse, you know? Um, so I, I would say that maybe for consumers of mental health, for practitioners, like, this is a reminder to myself, like to make sure that I take care of myself so I have the space to hold the space, right? So make sure, making sure that we, you know, talk to our therapists, right? And I think also that we don't expect ourselves to be perfect, right? Because we are not caricatures of humans. We're not, we are not our job, you know, we are people first, you know, and to remind ourselves, remind myself of that. Um, so that I don't think like I don't need support because this is what I do for a living is, is provide other people support. So, yeah. Great. Well, yeah. thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank There's so much good information me. here. And yeah. uh, I hope to see you again in a future episode. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great. <laughs>